Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Albania's Vyosa River has long been under threat from hydroelectric dam projects. The halting of a big one shows the growing influence of the country's environmentalists, who argue for far less destructive uses of the river plain. And loping across Bolivia's landscape is one of the world's largest collections of dinosaur footprints. But there are curiously few bones. We head out with paleontologists to find what could be learned from what lies beneath. First up, though. This weekend, central bankers from around the world concluded their annual Jackson Hole Summit. As ever, most of the attention was on the head of America's central bank, Jerome Powell, the one speech from the digital conference that was broadcast. He was honest about the challenges facing America's economy. These are challenging times for the public we serve as the pandemic and its unprecedented toll on health and economic activity linger. And the challenges for central bankers as they try to address those issues. If a central bank tightens policy in response to factors that turn out to be temporary, the main policy effects are likely to arrive after the need has passed. The ill-timed policy move unnecessarily slows hiring and other economic activity and pushes inflation lower than desired. As expected, there were no big policy shocks in the speech. Mr. Powell promised to stay the course and keep to the previously indicated timetable for raising interest rates and slowing the purchases of assets. The committee remains steadfast in our oft-expressed commitment to support the economy for as long as is needed to achieve a full recovery. Every word that central bankers say is carefully parsed by the markets, making closed-door conferences such as Jackson Hole all the more important. Central bankers like to gather together from time to time. Ryan Avent is The Economist's trade and economics editor and is based in Washington. It's always useful for practitioners of monetary policy to get together, to talk to each other, to discuss the big policy problems of the day and try to figure out what they think the best response is likely to be. And there are a lot of unprecedented challenges that central bankers are facing right now. Like what? So you have multiple competing pressures on the economy, You have some sectors which are straining to meet demand, and you're seeing rising prices and wages, some inflation concerns that go along with that. At the same time, you still have millions of people unemployed. And then there's some added drama on top of all those important economic concerns, which is that the chairman of America's central bank, the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, is coming to the end of his term. And there are questions in Washington about whether President Joe Biden is likely to reappoint him. 
despite the fact that he is officially a Republican who was nominated by Donald Trump. Or it's possible that President Biden might choose someone else. He might choose someone from his own party. And I think the calculation there is is whether Biden wants to go with someone who's a known commodity, who's shown themselves to be able to capably handle very challenging times over the past you know year and a half through the pandemic, or whether he'd like to go with someone else who maybe is a little bit more progressive, who's a member of Mr. Biden's party, and uh, who might be a little bit tougher on banks and 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 things like that 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 appeal to the Democratic base. But as for the the core business of these kinds of meetings about uh, setting rates and, and talking about policy and so on, where are central bankers on on the challenges that you're talking about? Well, the central challenge that the Federal Reserve is facing is that ordinarily, if there were a very even recovery, you might think, well, it's time to start raising rates to head off inflation. But you don't want to do that prematurely, slow growth at a time when people are still searching for jobs. And so the right way to balance that is really the main area of focus at these meetings at Jackson Hole. You know, I think it's interesting that one of the papers presented at the conference looks specifically at this question, and it concludes that what you want to do is go a little bit easier than you might normally would and accept a little bit more inflation, that you're not going to be able to get to this perfect world where you have no unemployment and inflation right on bang on target. So given this trade-off, what you'd rather do is accept a bit more inflation, accepting that these are unusual circumstances and it's really important to get people back to work. And so it'll be interesting to see how seriously the central bankers take this idea. Which is to say that the message is is for now not to raise rates. So Jerome Powell has been pretty clear in his communications that rates are not going to go up for a long time. They've set out some pretty specific things that they want to see first. In particular, they really want to see a healthy labor market and where the U.S. is still about 7 million jobs short of the pre-pandemic employment level. So there's a long way to go there. I think If the American economy were to continue to grow as fast as it has over the past few months, then maybe we'd be thinking about seeing our first interest rate increase toward the end of next year. But this is not something that's sort of imminent. I think it's important to note that the main policy rate is not the only tool that central banks have been using to fight weak economic conditions, either in this pandemic or in the decade prior. And actually, a lot of the attention is going to be focused on what they say about other policy levers that they've been using. Such as? So the big question hanging over the Jackson Hole Conference was what the Fed was going to do about its asset purchases, money-financed asset purchases, where the central bank essentially creates money out of thin air and then buys government bonds. And as it buys those bonds, it shoves money out to the economy and hopes to boost economic activity in that way. That's been kind of the big workhorse when it comes to policy since interest rates fell to zero around the global financial crisis. And during the pandemic, rich world central banks have been buying assets just hand over fist, just massive amounts. The Fed has been buying $120 billion in assets each month. This is just an enormous amount. And the question then is, how long is it going to continue to do this? The expectation would be that when the Fed was ready to start pulling back on its asset purchases, it wouldn't just turn the tap off. That wouldn't be it. It would slowly scale down the pace of purchases. It would taper them over time. And this may all sound like very in-the-weeds stuff that couldn't possibly matter for most people, but I think it ends up being pretty important because it determines how markets are going to be looking at financial market risk over the coming months. If there were a perception that the purchases were going to stop fairly soon, that there was going to be a really fast pace of tapering, then that might lead to, not to say panic, but a little bit of anxiety in markets that, that could end up rattling the recovery. Well, what is that way? How will you go about conveying that message? 
carefully, uh, I think is, is, is the best answer. So to give a sense of just how delicate this all is, there's going to be a meeting in September. And I think the expectation now is that at the September meeting, they will say, we're preparing to announce something. Not we're preparing to do something, but we're preparing to announce something. And then a couple months later, they'll have another meeting in November where they may actually announce something, not do something, but announce something. And then maybe in December, they will actually begin reducing the pace of purchases of government bonds. So that's kind of the very gentle way in which they're going to start to pull back on this. But all of these really delicate plans are being spooled out even as the Delta variant continues to to ravage the whole world. There's still a lot of uncertainty here. Well, I think that's a crucial point. Jason, there's a lot of focus on the upside risks that economies are facing. There's a lot of attention being paid to inflation and to the possibility that it might get out of hand. But I think the important thing that is in the background and that is in Jerome Powell's mind is that we don't just have upside risks. We also have potential downside risks. We are still in the middle of a pandemic. There could be new variants. The pandemic could get worse over the winter. There's any number of other things that could come along. And so as much as we might be conscious of the problems with inflation and how that might get worse, what you really don't want to do is to be stepping on the brake and then have the economy confront something really nasty that sets growth back a lot. And I think it's really important to remember all those potential risks and the importance of just taking it a bit slow and not worrying too much about whether you're letting the economy run hot for a bit. Thanks very much for joining us, Ryan. Thank you, Jason. It's always a pleasure. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. By a tributary of the Viosa River in Albania, scientists have been swishing nets through the bushes and trees. Among them is entomologist Gernot Kuntz from the University of Graz in Austria. The biodiversity is very, very high, and we have many species that only occur in that area. Scientists say this river system in the southern part of Albania is the last wild such network in Europe. That wilderness has been threatened by plans to generate hydropower from the building of dams. So far, a court case has halted any major construction, but threats to the river remain. The Viosa is this really majestic river which runs through the whole of South Albania. Tim Judah is our Balkans correspondent. It's never been channeled or dammed in Albania, and really it's in a kind of natural state. But for the last two decades or so, the Viosa has been under threat of being dammed and changed. But that threat, at least from one such dam, has now faded? 
A company initially got a contract to build a very big dam at a place called Kalivaj, and they started to build. There's been a court case in May, and it appears this major dam on the river itself has been stopped. But there are still threats for smaller hydroelectric plants along the tributaries. And who's behind this particular court case? Well, I think that what's happened in Albania, and actually in the rest of the Western Balkans, is that environmental groups are beginning to play a role and have an importance. You've had relatively small green groups like Echo Albania, who've managed to mobilise people. I went to a little village called Cute, where lots of land would be flooded, they would lose pasture land, they would lose their olive groves. And the other thing is that they're frightened that the complete ecosystem would change, river life would all vanish for good. And that's something that they really don't want to lose. So Echo Albania, with the villagers of Cute, were plaintiffs in one of the court cases against the dams on the Fiosa River. So the locals and environmental groups are are fighting the dams, but what's the political scene around these fights? Politically speaking, the prime minister, Eddie Rama, he was sort of clapping his hand against his forehead and going, I really don't know why everyone is still going on about this. I have said in the past that these dams are not going to happen on my watch. We uh, have made sure that uh, Vyasa River will be untouched. We have... uh, put all the Viosa River under the status of a protected zone. Under my administration, we have cancelled the old old projects that uh, were there to be developed. The problem is that the environmentalists don't trust him. They say that he said that before, and then there were contracts uh, given out for hydroelectric plants after he had said that. And also, they say that to have full protection, the area needs to be a national park. But now certain areas are protected zones, which is a less safe sort of protection if you want to keep the area in its pristine state. But Mr. Rama says every other country in Europe has dammed its rivers and every other country in Europe is much richer than we are. So we can't stay without doing any development. But we will do what we can and he is promising that the Vyosa River will be a sort of patchwork of protected areas and national park in the future. But if they've come this far, there must previously have been support for the projects from politicians. In the last election, the party of the former president, Sally Berisha, and the president, Ilya Mehta, were saying that they were against the damming of the Vyosa. Although in the past, it was not so clear that they were on the side of environmentalists. And indeed, Sally Berisha, the former president, said that he wanted Albania to become a big energy exporter. The idea of Sally Berisha was that if you dammed all of the rivers, or a lot more of them, then there would be a lot more to export. But of course, then that has its downsides, especially, for example, in tourism which is what the government wants to encourage now. And how is that push going to make money from tourism instead of from energy? Well, in the past few years, tourism has really been a major growth industry in Albania. Tirana has become quite a cool and trendy place. It's not at all the sort of little village that it was 20 or 30 years ago. And there's been quite a lot of development in green tourism and hiking in the north and um, beaches in the south. But there is still a lot of the area left to develop and a lot of empty beaches. And I have to say that this is really where we're going to see the next big fight. Because where the Vyosa flows out to the sea, it's just above the city of Vlora in the south. There's lagoons and salt flats and they're full of flamingos and pelicans. It's really quite a beautiful area. 
but the government has signed a contract and says that later this year they're going to start building a major international airport to bring in tourists. And the locals in that area are very much in favour of it because they say they haven't got any jobs and this will bring in tourists and this will bring jobs. So quite a contrast to the locals and the villagers upriver who say that damming the river will actually destroy the potential for tourism, which would come with development of a national park system. Given this recent court case, though, and what seems like significant environmental opposition, what do you think the the long-term future of the Viosa looks like? Well, the environmentalists say they're extremely happy, but we're not breaking open the champagne bottles yet because what they want is a national park system to be declared, which would give the river, or as much of it as possible, full protection. But they also say that the tributaries, of which there are dozens, also need to be protected. The fight is still going on. We have not managed to have the Viosa protected yet. It is a decision that says that the Viosa will be a nature park or a managed reserve, but this protection level doesn't give uh, the full protection that the Viosa River needs. I think the Viosa probably is protected and probably a national park system is going to be developed. And the fact that it is the last great wild river of Europe is something of a pool in and of itself because there's really nowhere else in Europe where such an undeveloped river still exists. Thanks very much for your time, Tim. Thank you for having me. I arrived in the village of Toro Toro and met Mario Haldin, a tiny silver-haired man in a sweater vest who is the village's most experienced guide. Sarah Maslin is The Economist's Brazil correspondent, but recently made tracks to Bolivia. He took me on a walk to see these huge three-toed footprints on the edge of town. There were all different kinds of them, round ones with fat toes, thin ones with pointy claws, and prints in straight lines and at weird angles. He told me that when he was growing up in the 1950s, his grandfather didn't like him to stay out late. So he would tell Mario the prints were from a monster that comes out only in the middle of the night. He would say, look, look how it's left its footprints in solid rock. It's a super dangerous animal. It'll eat you up. And then in 1983, a paleontologist visited from Italy and revealed their true origin, dinosaurs. So what do we know about dinosaurs in in Bolivia? So at this point, Bolivia has more than 15,000 confirmed dinosaur footprints, which is one of the highest numbers in the world. But they haven't unearthed big skeletons the way neighboring countries like Brazil or Chile have, or Argentina, which experts think was part of a shared migration route, which they call a dinosaur highway that stretched for thousands of miles. So why are there lots of footprints but not any bones? Dinosaurs lived during the Mesozoic era from 252 to 66 million years ago. And 
rock from this era is really scarce in Bolivia. And it tends to be in areas that are hard to reach, like areas that are heavily forested. And in Toro Toro, experts believe that it was once engulfed by a huge alkaline-heavy lake. Shorelines of these kind of lakes are ideal for sealing prints, but not for preserving bones. So that's it then. The only traces of the dinosaurs that are there are those footprints. Well, actually, there could be bones. The shifting of the tectonic plates left a lot of the Mesozoic layers in these accordion-like folds, which pushes prints and bones closer to the surface. Mario Haldin is convinced that the bones are down there, and if there was a serious search, they'd find them. And what are the chances that, that such a serious search might happen? So here's where a human element comes in. Bolivia is one of South America's poorest countries. You can count the number of full-time paleontologists on one hand, and there's not much science funding at all. In other South American countries, after big fines, the governments created science councils and allocated state funding for research, made university courses to teach paleontology. But Bolivia has done very little beyond building a few museums. So Bolivia clearly isn't making the most of its dinosaur potential here, but still this world-class set of dinosaur tracks is, is enough of a draw, isn't it? Absolutely. So at the local level, Bolivians are starting to realize paleontology's potential. Toro Toro has become the most popular national park, and Mario Haldin is one of dozens of people from the village who grew up to be tour guides. He's 69 now, but was shimmying down the mountain and hopping between these dinosaur footprints as if he were still a child. He says that locals now know how to identify these prints. This is and they keep finding new footprints. Recently, in a village near Toro Toro, a farmer taking his cows out found a new set that a local paleontologist thinks could add to the growing evidence that land dinosaurs could swim. And the hope is that over time, the growing awareness and excitement will lead to more funding from somewhere, whether it's the government or some international institution, to start prospecting seriously for dinosaur bones. Thanks very much for joining us, Sarah. Thanks a lot, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And see you back here tomorrow. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.